everyone. I'm back with another episode of Off the Record. I'm your host, Aram Mukumuf. Thanks for tuning in. And I'm here today with Mike Evans, who's building a new company called Fixer. Uh, he went to MIT, from which he graduated with a pile of debt and co-founded Grubhub. That years later, he led through five financing rounds, a couple of acquisitions, a merger, and ultimately an IPO. Mike is also writing a book, Hangry, A Startup Journey which is coming sometime in 2022. What a journey, Mike. Thanks for having, uh, thanks for coming on our show today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's great to be here. Happy to, happy to chat. Awesome. First question I have is um, about your book. So, so you're writing this book, it's called Hangry, A Startup Journey. So I want to ask, why hungry spelled with an A? Yeah, it's, uh, it's actually angry spelled with an H. Uh, oh, is it? Yeah, okay. so it's, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, that feeling when like you've ordered delivery food and it's like an hour and 15 minutes and the food's not there yet. Uh, and you just, your body just won't let you think <laughs> about anything else and you're angry about it. Uh, and so I obviously, I tried to solve that problem with Grubhub. I created this online ordering platform, um, you know, signed up 50,000 restaurants, brought the company all the way through the IPO. Um, and uh, throughout that process, it is, it's an emotional process, creating a startup uh, and, and going through all those steps, everything from signing up my first restaurant and getting, you know, getting thrown out of the first like 20 restaurants that I walked into all the way through, um, what it feels like to get wined and dined by investment bankers. You know, there's just, it's not like an emotionally neutral experience. Like it's your, like you're, you put all of your energy and effort into it. Um, and so, uh, and so there's ups and there's downs. Um, and then, um, you know, as I was, and then as I was leaving the company, um, you know, the, the kind of have to let it go and, and let it, let it do its own thing. And so at that time I was, I was pretty burnt out. I was pretty, pretty tired from, a, you know, all the time that I spent working and really just spent a lot of time thinking about like what my legacy with that was and what I was going to do next. Um, and, and it right at that time is when Grubhub was sort of pivoting into the gig economy model. Mm -hmm. Um, and I was a little bit frustrated by it cause I thought it was, it was the wrong move, but I was also not my baby anymore. And so I had to let it go. And so that's what the book is about letting go of the old sort of thinking about the new and really just being um being what it's like to have goals and to hit those goals and then to have your goals change and then to not hit some of those goals and in the and the emotional experience of going through that interesting and so why why decide to write a book about it uh, instead of like a big blog post or what 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 is what what do you want to get out through the book yeah the the point of the book is um if I had to sum it up in one line, it's it's be careful what you ask for. You you just might get it, um, and and how um, it's really important to set goals and um, to really understand for oneself, especially in the startup world, um, what it is you're trying to accomplish. Because different people have different goals for you, and so mm -hmm. um, investors will have different goals, and employees have different goals, and so having a, a, a goal defined for oneself is really important. And so that's the that's the message of the book that sometimes you hit those and it's and it's great and sometimes you don't and it can be really frustrating, um, but it's important to be explicit and intentional about it. And so I I I, I talk about this. I'm saying it to you right now on a podcast, right? Uh, I do write long blog posts about it. I tweet about it. I mm. I I started a new company where this is the whole idea behind the company. And so it, this is the message I'm trying to put out in every channel possible. The book just is is the one that really sort of is the fullest treatment uh, of that idea. And, um, and yeah, and, and that's, that's why I wanted to get that, get that message out to as many people as possible. 
I, I think you touched upon um, some already with uh, be careful what you wish for and, you know, make the like really focus on your goals. But what are some of the in through the book or through your other experiences? What are the two biggest lessons young first time early stage founders can take away? Yeah, I mean, the first one is I, I just said it. So know know what it is you're trying to accomplish before you start putting your effort in. Right. Um, and then, you know, once that goal is set and you have a direction to start pulling, um, for, for the first time entrepreneur or second time entrepreneur or, or nth time entrepreneur, um, make revenue. It's just a hobby. It's just a hobby until you have customers. And uh, there's nothing like a paying customer um, who's disappointed with your product that, or, or a paying customer who's really satisfied it that, that is a motivator for change that's um, entirely theoretical when you don't have customers. And so move, moving from the theoretical, from the hobby, to the real and to the business, um, it should happen within the first hour of a business, ideally. Like you shouldn't take six months writing, creating products before you release it out into the wild. Okay, hundred uh, percent. Revenue is is key, right? With any kind of business, small or large. Um, before we get into your career journey, uh, last time when we had a chance to connect, you said something really interesting, and I wanted to talk about it. You said. You have to have the tenacity and grit and stay the course, but also the insight and flexibility to change your mind. I feel like this is a balance that is quite unique in every situation. I, you know, I want to get your thoughts on, on that a bit more. Yeah, there's no like if you were an investor and you were trying to test for this, this, th that set of ideas, you, you, you couldn't because it's so situational. And yet it is the fundamental paradox of there's there's really two fundamental paradoxes of creating a startup. This is one of them, and it's this idea that like you you're you're going out to the world and you're saying, um, "Hey world, something is wrong. It's not good, and I'm going to fix it. And I have an idea about how I'm going to fix it, and um, and I'm right about it, and the entire world is wrong about it, um, which is an incredibly arrogant perspective, right? And yet. For the successful entrepreneur, they are correct when they say that, and so they go out into the world and they, and they, make a stamp. They try to make a stamp on it, right? That's that's what we do as entrepreneurs, and then, um, and the world always has the same response: "You're wrong. We always do it this way. We've always ordered pizzas by phone. Like, why would you need to do this online? It's not that hard to pick up the phone." And, you know, my position was. It is that hard to pick up a phone. It is really hard to pick up a phone compared to using, at the time it was an app and then eventually became mobile, but that came later. Um, and so the world comes back and tells you you're wrong, right? And so the tenacity is, the, the staying the course is this idea of like, well, no, no, I am right and I am going to make this work and I am going to create online ordering and, and change an industry with it. Um, and so that was the tenacity, right? So then a few fast forward a few years, and one of my board members is like, you know, don't you think you should be able to order? Like I've got this flip phone and I can I do a lot of texting with it. It wasn't a smartphone, it was just like an uh like a Nokia flip phone that they had, or uh, wasn't even a Blackberry at that point. And the and the and this board member, Steve Miller, said, you know, maybe maybe you should be able to order by text. And I said, no one will ever order a pizza on a mobile phone. You're crazy. Like, that'll never happen. It's just computers. <laughs> um, 
And then very quickly after that, it was maybe like three or four months after that, I was like, you know what? I'm wrong. Like, I'm wrong. People are going to order by phone. Like, computers are going to be replaced by handheld computers or by phones. And uh, and I better get on this fast. And so that was a situation where the tenacity and the grit and the I'm right and the world is wrong would have really hurt me, right? And instead, what we did is we actually created... Um, the, the Grubhub app was like the it was in the first hundred apps on the on the um, in the app store for the for the Apple app store. And so, um, you know, that was an accelerant on the business. Like, you know, I mean, it was an incredible accelerant on the business to, to be the only app in the app store that had online ordering and had forty five thousand restaurants backing it uh, at the time. It's probably closer to twenty thousand. Um, and so that this is the tension, right? Like I, I started with the the grit and then I. But then I had to be agile, and like that's the paradox. And like, there's a the, the graveyard of of failed startups where they applied at agility when they should have applied tenacity, or they had they stayed the course when they should have pivoted. Like, that's ninety eight percent of failures, and it's like ninety percent of startups that start. Like, this, most companies fail because they get this wrong. And here's the thing, like. There's there's really no data that's going to tell you which like it's it's generally a gut feel, um, so it might just be luck actually, but um, but yeah I mean it's that's it is like the the it's the why startups one of the reasons why startups are so hard. I mean you, you mentioned luck, but I'm sure there's a bit more to it. Were there any kind of tactics, methods, principles, tricks, whatever that you use in order to you know, have that balance work for you at Grubhub and then now even with Fixer? Yeah, I think um, one of the one of there's a bunch of techniques that you can apply, you know, uh, among the among the ones that are in the, the highest probability to tell you, you know, whether or not staying the course or pivoting is the right path. You know, one, one is certainly an obvious one is revenue, right? If you're not making enough money to continue existing, uh, then you have to change something, right? So like there's there's an element of like, you have to be agile enough to figure out what the what the product market fit is. But there's another piece, which is just talking to customers, understanding what customers want. And so if you have a lot of customers, so I've built two consumer businesses now where we're trying to get millions of consumer customers. And so when you have a lot of customers, you have enough data to be able to say, okay, several hundred thousand people want this feature, right? Um, and so listening to customers and finding out what the, where where they want the product to go that's that's really quite valuable um apple didn't do this right steve jobs just figured it out and just did it himself so like that who the like i'm not that guy like i need to talk to my customers i sure like some there are geniuses who just can just know that but like i wasn't one of those people and so um, that's the probably the biggest thing i would say is just a customer orientation and and really strong feedback loops and lots of conversation about what customers are saying. And even as those things happen, saying, yes, we are going to do some of the things, and no, we're not going to, because you can't you can't go after every single feature customers want. You can't, not everything that they that they say or they want, you know, if, if all your customers say, I wish this was free, like clearly that's not a path that you can always go down. Um, but they should at least drive thoughtfulness. Um, and so that's probably the biggest thing is just customer orientation. Um, they'll tell you. It could be, particularly hard in enterprise businesses where a very small number of customers drive a lot of revenue because one of the one of the pitfalls there is if you listen to customers, you might end up just becoming not, not much more than a custom development shop for a large entity. And that's not a good way to create a startup. All right. Um, 
I wanted to ask now some questions about your actual startup journey. So from what I think you told me before, you, you, you went to MIT, you graduated. Was, was Grubhub your first company that you, you started right after um, MIT or did you do something before? I worked as a stop software developer for a couple of years at um at a, at a at the parent company for apartments.com. Um okay. and so I I did a couple of years of um lead generation it was a lead generation startup and so I saw a little bit about that business model as a software developer. Um and because because I'm both an entrepreneur and a software developer so it's like two doses of arrogance, right? <laughs> like um I was like I can I could do this better. I could do this for I don't like I don't know about apartments and lead generation, but I think there's something with food that could be done here. Um, and so that I was there probably I think just under two years before I started uh, started growing up. I started my apartment, um, started I write code at night, sell restaurants during during the day, um, and I bootstrapped it for three and a half years uh, before we took our first investment. And we we generate we got it got up to about a million dollar run rate in revenue over the first three and a half years before we took any investment. Um, and I brought a partner on and then, and then a few other employees as well during that time. Did your time working at the, at that apartment lead generation company, did that give you some tactics strategies on what you applied to doing lead generation for Grubhub? I think, um, you know, that, that company was, is a small company. It was sort of a little bit past the startup stage. Um, there's probably 300 employees. But um, it, I think it helped me understand um, the uh, how how sacrosanct policies are in a large organization and how resistant to change things are simply because they've always been done that way. And so understanding that from like a especially from an HR perspective, it made me start to think about like oh well there's there's like a different way to treat people that you could do in a company. Um, that, um, and so I started to have, there was some things that they did poorly that I was like, oh, I think this could be done better. But then there were some things that were done really well, um, like lead generation and sales and, and their software development, um, like those things were all good and, and creating production environments, like their sysops were good. Like I learned a lot about some of those things. Um, yeah, I mean, it, like I certainly learned a lot. There was something really valuable about being in a corporation for a couple of years, um, to take what I wanted and to leave behind what I didn't before starting the company. Okay. And uh, you said you got to a million run rate um, before you took on an investment. Mm-hmm. Um, during that time, were you um, like, what was life like for you? Like, were you paying yourself like small <laughs> yeah. salary? Were you paying yourself any salary? Did you yeah, take on I, the, um, the I had money? to pay myself salary because I needed to eat. Um, okay. So, uh, yeah, I, I, the first the first two years, I took a salary of about uh, the first year just under forty k, and the second year like forty five thousand for that second year. I stopped paying my school loans. I didn't like. I just stopped paying. I just stopped sending the check in. I'm like, well, this is gonna cost me a crap ton of money later, but like, whatever. I'm gonna try and do this thing. Um, and so, you know, I was working. I was working a lot. I was I was working a lot of hours, um, eighty to ninety hours a week. I was doing a lot of like arbitraging my time. Like I would set up network, like like local networks in inside small businesses. I'd set up like their Wi-Fi and stuff like that, um, and get paid a higher rate than I could pay myself. So that you know, if I did this for five hours, it'll earn me thirty-five hours of work on Grubhub. And so I was doing a lot of that, um, just sort of trying to get cash in wherever I could while I was like getting the business to launch. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I, I was I'm married. I was married at the time, uh, and and so my wife um, uh, and I and I still am. And my wife would spend some time in India um, as an attorney, but it was volunteers. She wasn't so like she. We were apart for about a year, um, so that actually I actually had time to work on some of this stuff. Um, yeah, I mean it was it was a hustle. I don't I don't necessarily think that that's I don't want to glorify the hustle like. That's not necessarily the way to do things. And then the third year, I got back to a much more reasonable amount of time. I had more employees, like I had a partner. Um, and then by the fourth year, I was making, you know, not not quite what I did as a software developer, but a little bit more. Um, so I could actually, you know, start paying off my school loans, which had accrued penalties and interest at that point. Um, and so, um, yeah, I mean, it was it was a, it was a lot a lot of hard work, but it was it was really fun too. Like it's it's fun to go into a restaurant and be like. Are they going to kick me out? Are they going to yell at me? Are they going to sign up? Like, I don't know. We're going to find out. Here's another like adventure day number 38. Like, here we go. Um, and then they would tell me, no, I'm not going to sign up unless you do blank or X or Y or Z. And so then in the evenings, you know, if I got enough of those data points in the evenings, I'd write that software, go back the next day, try and sell them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the product improved very rapidly as I was having the customers give me the feedback. Um, yeah, and I learned how to do marketing and like all that stuff at the same time. I mean, I was kind of making it up as I go along, which is typical for for entrepreneurs. Uh, you you don't know the stuff until you do it, and so um, yeah. But it was it was intense. It was an intense time in my life for sure. I bet. And when did you realize with Grubhub that hey, this company has a lot of potential that I could really go to like to the moon? Um, day two. <laughs> Like, that early <laughs> yeah um wrote you know after the first sale to the, the first restaurant that paid me it was it was like so the first restaurant we got i got the check from the first restaurant and i, and I think it was a, a few weeks later that i quit my job and was like i'm doing this full time um you know i had that first check was like 140 bucks it wasn't a lot of money uh and so um but but in my mind, what I what I was thinking to myself is like, there's this really inefficient system, and there's all these restaurants are doing things like buying ads on benches or putting things in the yellow pages or like there's they're 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 looking for ways to acquire customers that are super inefficient and offline, and uh, that entire industry is about to die, and I'm like, well, if it's about to die, maybe I should be the one that kills it, like. Let me like let me be the predator. Like this is great. I'm gonna do it. And so uh, and so I I had a sense pretty quickly that like I could figure out how to do SEO and figure out how to do SEM and acquire customers and then create a better consumer experience and then deliver those customers to restaurants. Um, I I sort of knew I knew a lot of those things were gonna happen. And then I, if you just look at how big the industry is, you're like, okay, well that's huge. Mm-hmm. Um, that I think it pales in comparison to the business I'm creating now, which is actually going to be I I think much larger. Um, with this business, it's, you know, so let me talk a little about Fixer. So Fixer is an on-demand handy person service with the people who do the work are W2 employees. Um, and we train them from scratch. And so it sounds like a super costly, not startup-y kind of way to do things. Um, but the reality is that the short, there's a shortage of skilled workers in the United States. And, um, and so the thumbtacks and Angie's list and home advice and home advisors and all those companies of the world, like there just aren't enough people to connect from a lead generation standpoint anymore. And so we said, well, why don't we make more, like, why don't we create a gender and, and, and racially balanced way for people to enter the trades 
essentially make more tradespeople, not, not make the humans, but turn more people into tradespeople, um, and, then, and then provide a premium product to consumers where they don't have to pick up the phone, and, and it's a good experience, and it's high quality, um, and, it's, and it's creating the impact that we want to in terms of creating this, this gender and racially um, uh, inclusive entry path into the trades. But then if you look at the addressable market, it's, it's insanely large, right? Like if you look at what people spend on food, that's one thing. If you look at what people spend on their homes, it's a much bigger number. And so um, I have the same feeling about this business that it's, it's going to be very large. Mm -hmm. I, I want to I definitely talk about Fixer and I, wanna, I have a bunch of questions for that. Just last, last question or two on Grubhub I wanted to ask. Um, when you led Grubhub through those financing rounds and all that, mergers, acquisitions, and then finally the IPO. Was there anything that you felt learned along the way through all those kind of like growth stages or was it just always one thing after another? Um, you're just kind of like growing the business to a certain point until you left it? Yeah, I think um, the, you know, we took our first financing and, and I, I learned things at every, I learned big things at every financing. I took the first financing and, and one of the big lessons is it's not my business anymore. It is now a business owned by a group of people and I need to be okay with that transition mm -hmm. and I need to embrace it. Um, otherwise, uh, I'm not, um, I, I shouldn't have investors. And so there's an element of like, I don't want to be overly concerned about who has control of the business. I. I, I need to hold it with like a with loose hands um, as I as I share equity in the business with other people and I get the cash in return and can grow the business faster. So that was a big lesson. Pretty shortly after that, we we started growing extraordinarily fast, and I was able to take um, I was able to sell a very small portion of my shares um, enough to pay off the school loans that I had incurred all the interest on. And so um, when I started the when I started the company, my goal was I wanted to pay off my school loans. So I hit that goal and I hit that goal Pretty like quickly. six years in. It was yeah. it took a little while because I bootstrapped for four years, but six years in. Um, and then I had to think about what, what my new goal was, right? And my, and my new goal is like, okay, well, I want to I want to grow this to the point where it's really helping um, most of the small businesses in the United States. Like I, I want to make them more likely to be successful if they're with our company than with not. And it was very, it was a very restaurant focused goal. Um, and I want the employees of the company to, to to benefit from it financially as well. And I obviously I want to get shareholders. So I, I was very focused on what my goal was, but um, ultimately it was about, um, okay, like I got the financial return I said I wanted out of this. Certainly I wouldn't mind more, but what I really want is I want to create a company that's really good for the restaurants. And so for the first, then for the next six years, um, that was reflected in our customer base. We had no chains. It was all independent restaurants. Um, and we leveled the playing field. like. The KFCs and Domino's and, and those kind of companies that already did their own, they, they could build their own online ordering platforms. Um, and uh, and, and we, we built that for restaurants so they could compete with the big chains. And so that was really, that was really satisfying. Um, but then as we went through a merger, you know, a Series D and then a, and then a merger, and then, and then we were approaching the IPO, the number of investors who got involved, it really it diluted that, that goal. And the goal of the company became... Um, we need to maximize shareholder returns sort of at all costs for, for the public shareholders. And, and my goal was still, I want this to be good for restaurants. And so when those two goals diverged, there was really no more space place for me at the company. And so 
that's one of the things I learned was that like if you want an impact orientation in your business, um, you really have to think about that very early and you have to codify it in the actual structure of the business and you have to get investors who agree, right? The John Q. Public, the stock, like st the stock market taken, like if you if you pretend all all investors as a whole are a person, that person is a greedy narcissist. And the only thing they care about is making money. They don't care about anything else. If you met that person, you would hate them. Um, and so um, it's just it's just really something you really got to think about before taking a company public is that you are now beholden to a jerk. <laughs> and that jerk only wants money and does not care about the environment or employees or customers. They don't care about any of those things. They just want to make money. And so it's... Um, this is that theme, like, be careful what you ask for. You might, just might get it. And so, um, and so then as I, that's one of the things I learned is, is, is just be very intentional about goals and don't set them too low. Like my initial goal of, of um, I wanted to pay off my school loans was, was too low of a goal. And so when I hit it, I had to reinvent a new one. But if I had started with the goal of, I want to make a company that makes restaurants more successful. And that had been enshrined in the company from the very first day that that would have continued and i i don't i don't want to badmouth the company they do do good for restaurants um but but they could do better right and so um and it, it it's frustrating for me to see that they don't but um yeah i mean that was that was that was the lesson that i really learned throughout all of these things. i mean i learned a bunch of other things as well um but that's probably the one that's probably most valuable to share no thank you mike um last question on grubhub was uh, i've been speaking to a few people about um when they've been taking their businesses through to IPO. And I wanted to ask you if there was anything that you would want to tell a founder that they should prepare for, whether that's financially, legally, mentally, um, when they get to that point. Um, a lot of people said that, you know, legally, you really have to have all that kind of stuff well, well figured out and flushed out. So that was like one thing. Is there anything else that uh, you would want to share? Yeah. So first of all, I should say I wrote a very long blog post about this. It's like it's like eight thousand words on my website, which is at mikeevans.com, um, and it was shared in Forbes and a bunch of stuff like that, where I talk about what the IPO process is in detail. And so, if anyone's thinking about it, go read go read the post. Uh, it, there's a lot of detail in there um, because one of the things about the process that you don't know going into it is it's very secretive. Um, you exactly. the the people involved are so worried about getting sued or pursued by the SEC that the that's mums the word just don't talk about it um and so um that's just one thing to be aware of that like that there's there's sort of a lot of gag orders like on what you can say and so um I wrote stuff in the post like knowing that most people don't and so please feel free to go check it out but um I I think one of the things that I would caution not caution one of the things just to be fully eyes open about is that um investment bankers are really good at their jobs and the lawyers that they work with are really good at their jobs and it's a delight to work with them because it's a delight to work with competent people um and so i really enjoyed working with them it's their like 83rd ipo and it's your first and they are not looking out for your interest they are looking out for their interests and their clients and so um you cannot be better than the investment bankers and the lawyers and the, like everyone involved in the process, it is impossible to be better at the IPO process than the people who are really good at their jobs who have done it a bunch more times than you. And, and your interests are not the same. 
So, um, you know, that one, it's just something to be aware of. It, it, I would, um, I would not go through an, an IPO with an investment bank again. I would only do a direct listing because of that. Um, because, you know, a, a lot of in the, the, the line goes with investment banks that you want to have a big pop on the first day where, where you, you price at one point and then in the first trade, it's much higher. But all of that, all that value goes to the, the clients of the investment banks. And it really should be accrued by, um, it should really be accrued by the company, not by the investment banks, because um, there's really no reason to give that that uptick to others. There's no there's no point to it um, because ultimately, five weeks down the road, the investment bank's gone, and the and the the, the stock's just going to trade at what it trades at, regardless of how good or bad your IPO was. Cool. Um, thank you for sharing that. Uh, yeah. So w when we spoke last time, you mentioned that after you did the Grubhub IPO, you took some time and you took some time and you, you rode your bike across the US. What, what brought you to, to wanting to do that? Did you just want to have like a, a clarity? A yeah, I was wiped out. I was tired. Out. <laughs> well, I guess people don't go on a 5,000 mile bike ride if they're tired. Uh, <laughs> I was mentally tired, uh, not physically. And um, I wanted to get some perspective, take a step back, think about what I had accomplished and think about what I wanted to do different next time. Um, and so, uh, also I'd always wanted to do, I'd always wanted to do like a big hike, like the Appalachian trail or something like that. It turns out doing it on a bike is way better because the stuff's not on your shoulders. It's on the bike. So like, it's just more comfortable. <laughs> Plus I saw a lot of the country. Uh, and so, um, I saw a lot of the United States it, I just loved it. It was everything about it. It was three months. Um, and I just, just got to see all these wonderful towns. I met an amazing number of wonderful people. I made friends for a lifetime. Um, and it just gave me some time to take a step back and get some perspective. Um, and it, it just made me really think long and hard about the next business I was going to create. And so I'm a big, I'm a big uh, proponent and advocate for, for impact-oriented businesses because um, businesses change the, world's, the world that, th that they exist in. Uh, for good or for ill and by default it's for ill like without think if you don't think about it um most businesses make the world a worse place aside from the economic benefit that they create for their shareholders and, em and employees but if you think about it it's actually not that hard to create businesses that create um environmental social or, or, or social good or um create benefit in the communities or in their customers there's a lot of stakeholders in businesses and so just a little bit of like forethought goes a long way to creating business creating entity that like that benefits um more than just just shareholders and employees and i think that that's actually real i think it's actually a moral imperative at this point um, and that was the perspective that i gained on on the bike ride and it wasn't new i've been thinking about this for years at grow and i've been trying to influence things tor towards that path so yeah so i want to i want to talk about uh fixer now so um from what you've mentioned before i think you've invested i think you said 100 150 companies right something like that no not like quite that many it's probably closer to like 50 50 okay so yeah. so you've invested in 50, 50 companies yeah. um and so i want to ask what what made you want to uh really focus in on what fixer is doing um or you know in the industry it is and be a ceo ceo again in this specific company versus the other 50 that you invested in? Yeah, I, um, there's some evidence I was pretty good at creating companies, right? <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Uh, there's at least one data point that I was pretty good at it, right? right. Uh, and I had, like I said, I invested in like 50 companies. There were, I wouldn't say 50, but there was 30 data points that I was not very good as an investor. Uh, and so I was like, okay, this, I'm not making the impact I want to make on the world doing this. So, so let me take the skills, let me take what I'm good at, the skills that I have, the resources, not only the cash I made from the Grubhub IPO, but the the relationships I had with the other investors, the relationship I had with former coworkers, um, all the stuff I learned while running a company, take all of those things, and how can I take that and um, make the world a better place if I use those resources? Like th That's where it started from. Also, I was trying to get a rain barrel installed for my garden, and I couldn't get anybody to show up. It was just a real pain. Uh, and so I'm like, okay, well, there's a real consumer problem here, and I have all these resources. And, uh, and so I was starting to think like you know, some sort of on-demand construction-based company is probably would be really powerful. And then when I started looking into it, um, at the time I had really started getting into impact investing and that was doing a lot better than the non-impact investing I, was do I had been doing previously. Um, and the idea behind an impact company is that the, the business, the value that the business creates for, com for customers and for shareholders is the same thing as the social benefit it creates. And and when I when I realized that the reason that the that the rain barrel I couldn't get somebody to show up is because there aren't people to show up like there just aren't enough people in the trades and there's a big stigma associated with going into it um, and then not only is there not people going into into the trades the those that do if they're not white and male they have a really hard time entering the trades there's it's just very hard if you don't have a cousin or an uncle or a grandfather or a dad who introduces you to somebody who can mentor you if you don't have someone who can introduce you it's just hard to enter the trades through through historical paths and those and and those paths i just described are by their nature um gender and racial exclu racially exclusive and so i was like well if there aren't enough people, and that's the core problem, and, this, and the solution is we want to create an entry path into the trades, well, we could also increase the gender and, and, and racial diversity in the trades by like by creating this really good entry path and creating a really good job, um, and then charging a premium for that service because if supply is limited and we have a premium experience then and demand is high, then we can charge a premium for it. Mm -hmm. And so all those things were coming together in my head, and I was like, I'm going for it. I'm going to do it again. Uh, and so started the company. Um, I have a friend, Katie, who is the first fixer and she can fix anything. Um, and uh, I have five other friends, all guys that are startup guys that couldn't fix anything. And so I texted those five and said, I'm open for business. And one of them texted me back and said, hey, come install some shelves. And so that was 40 minutes into the first business, the first hour of the business. I'm like, all right, we got revenue. We got revenue. Uh, and so like I had to sign up for a, uh, what did I sign up for? I think I signed up for a Square account to like charge the credit cards. And it's funny because like when I left Grubhub, you know, we were negotiating with credit card companies for multi-billions, like tens of billions in credit card transactions. And then like, I seriously have to start with a Square account again? Like, can I just get the rate I had before? Because <laughs> it was way better, you know, at that at this at scale. Uh, and so yes, yeah, so I signed up for a credit card account, and then and then very quickly, the business evolved. Uh, to um, okay, instead of me just texting my friends, let's set up some some SEM and, and Google and and, and video account, like marketing accounts, and um, let's make sure that the platform that we use to connect 
the customer and our and our fixers instead of me just texting from my phone like let's start setting up communications channels and having a dispatch system and create an app for the fixers and then figure out a training program and figure out a safety program and like get insurance and like you know it just it just it started with do the one job and then it became do a thousand jobs then it became how do we do 10,000 jobs well and safely and then how do we acquire customers at a reasonable rate to make that profitable like that's that's just been the whole process for creating the company and in the meantime it's it's working like the we we maxed out at one point at 44 percent of the fixers are women um it's down a little bit because the pandemic adversely affected more women in jobs than men um but it's it's working we're creating a we're creating a gender diverse racially diverse um entry path into the trades and customers love it they love that like they can order a handy person through our app we show up we do the work it's well done it costs a premium right it is expensive um but then that cash goes back into um hiring the next fixer right the and, and training the next person from scratch um and so the 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 process is working we're in four cities now um chicago san uh, chicago seattle denver and dallas um and we'll be in 20 cities in two years i mean we're, we're sort of on that path again that the Literally, it's the exact same playbook that I used with Grubhub. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a I have a question I wanted to ask you about about the industry itself. So you kind of touched, t- talked about at the beginning um, that there's been a decline in in the in the trade education sector. Not a lot of people have been going into it, or like if you if your family member wasn't in trade, then you don't. It's hard to kind of go into it that way. Mm-hmm. How are you? Um, how are you navigating through the, that opportunity to reboot, essentially, the trade education in the U.S.? Yeah, that, and that, by the way, is our goal, to reboot trade education in the United States. So um, I imagine I must have said that to you at some point. So otherwise, you, you, are, you have an amazing skills and divination to have figured that out. So... Um, the path that works for trade education is I asked my uncle, and my uncle showed me how to do things, and he brought me on jobs, and then he paid me a little bit. And um, there's a couple of features of that path that, that are really important. One is that you earn while you're on the job. Two, it generally happens young enough that the needs for earning don't involve actually supporting a family, right? So those are two of the key key things that work about that path. There are challenges to it as well. It's not high throughput, there, it doesn't scale, it, it tends to be male-oriented. Um, there's, there's some challenges to that path, although it does work really well for the people who go through it. Um, and so when we thought about creating a, a, what doesn't work? Okay, pay tuition to go to a school for two years where you don't earn anything, come out with debt, um, First of all, you can't even do that if you're already supporting a family. Even if you're doing it on minimum wage, you can't just stop earning, right, to, to go to school. You can do that with college, and you can take a mass amount of debt in college because the return on investment supposedly is so high that you can then pay it off over the course of a lifetime. But the but but it doesn't the the ratio of the amount of time you have to take, if you have to, if you have to take two years in a trade school to like then go like it just doesn't it doesn't work and people typically enter trade schools later in life than they than 18 right and so they usually have responsibilities and so that they can't the the needs on their income are even higher and so we just took those facts and we said well the training program has to pay people 
the day that they start, even though they have no skills. We have to start paying them the day that they start. Um, and so we had to set up a mentorship model pretty quickly where we can bring, it, it turns out that if you're hanging a TV in somebody's house, one person has to really know what they're doing, right? They have to know how to do the drywall, they have to know the electrical, they have to be able to make it look nice, they have to know how to talk to customers, they have to know how to clean things up. The other person has to hold the other end of the TV. <laughs> so uh, it's a great job for the first day for a new trainee, right? Uh, because they can observe and they can learn through osmosis very quickly the customer skills, always keeping things clean, being thoughtful about how you organize your tools before a job starts, being friendly to the family dog when you go in somebody's house, like all those things you pick up pretty quickly that historically someone would have learned from their uncle, right? And so, um, so the big innovation is that we don't start with teaching Ohm's law or how to what electrical codes are or anything like that. We start with sending sending trainees as a helper into customers' homes. And then, um, and then it, well, we actually start with the digital curriculum. The, all, the, all the fixers start with, the, with an actual digital curriculum the day before they show up. But they can do that in the evenings while they have their old job before the day they start with us, right? So it doesn't, it's not costing them earning, earning time. Um, and so that's the idea is, the, is you learn on the job. And then after a few weeks of learning on the job, we take a step back and everybody does classroom and lab time to reinforce and to put structure around what they had already learned. So that's the program we created. It's very flexible and it, it doesn't cost a ton of money. I mean, it, it doesn't cost a little bit of money, but um, but we're, we're charging customers for the value that we create while we're training. And so that's, it's all, it took, you know, it took four years to build this system. It took a lot of work to get this working. Um, but that's the idea behind it. Um, we're trying to take the best parts of traditional trade education and just make them, make them scalable um, and make them work for all types of people. How did you? How, how are you going? Oh, sorry. How are you going about finding those um, those tradespeople right now? Yeah, we advertise just like we would for customers. We do Facebook ads and Craigslist ads, and we put ads on Indeed, and we um, create videos, and we do. Um, influencer marketing and we do SEO and we have landing pages that are highly optimized. We just assume we have two sides of a network we have to create. All the things you do on the consumer side, just do them on the supply side as well. Which by the way is the same thing that Uber and Grubhub and DoorDash and all those companies do for drivers on their supply side. Um, they just have to be 1099 workers and we're hiring W2. Um, I, I noticed one, one recurring theme uh, in terms of a skill set that you you learned when you were a software developer early on that you then applied again and grew I can't wait to find out what you've observed. Now, I'm so excited for this. It's your it's it's your fixer is like the importance of like an entrepreneur or founder knowing how to do SEO SEM well. Yeah. Would you say that that's like a pretty important skill trait um, to know? Or I think that not necessarily. I think that a founder has to have technical domain skills. Like if you just got an MBA and you're like, I'm going to start a business because I know about business, like it's bullshit. You don't know about like it's, those are not the right people to start businesses. I mean, people ask me the question, how do you find a technical co-founder? And I'm like, I don't know. I was the technical co-founder. I just learned <laughs> the software. And so, um, but you don't have to necessarily know how to do marketing with SE, digital marketing, right? Or you don't necessarily have to know how to do software development. You don't necessarily have to know how to do sales or product development, or operations, or finance, or legal. You don't have to know any one of those. You don't have to know every one of those things. You have to know two or three of them yourself because there's so little room in a startup 
for someone who's not pulling their weight. Any one of those skills, you can hire somebody to like plug in. But if you have to hire all of them, unless you are, unless you have some unfair advantage in terms of raising financing, um, it's just too expensive to hire all those people uh, for before you even know what the whether customers like the idea that you don't even know you have yet. Like it's just too hard. So, um, so I think some technical skills are important, and I think the idea that you you have to get conversant and learn all of all of the technical skills so that you can at least when you set the strategy and you have a VP of marketing telling you how what the SEO or SEM strategy is, you have to be able to have a reasonable conversation about it at some level of depth. You don't have to be an expert necessarily, um, but you have to be able to judge whether or not the, the, the strategy that the marketing person is laying out correctly ladders up to the overall strategy for the company and whether they're executing well. At the very least, you have to know that so that you can hire the right person, right? Exactly. And know if they're bullshitting you or if like they actually know their job, right? Um, and then over time, you become um, maybe not maybe not just a generalist, but like um, some depth across a very broad level set of skills. Now, it just so turns out that I was a software developer and I did a lot of the marketing and sales early on, and so I I can speak to VPs of technology and marketing and sales in a pretty conversant way. The legal and HR stuff I was never very good at. Um, I mean, I'm okay, I'm good at setting culture, but like the actual like practice of, of executing HR policy, I have to rely on experts for that completely because I just, it's not my, it's not my, and nobody should sort of assume that they, they have to be the expert in everything. Uh, last couple of questions, Mike. Um, I wanted to ask with with Fixer, if I'm not mistaken, you you did a Series A, I think, for five million. Is that is that right? Yeah. Uh, so why 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 raise um, with, with Fixer? Why go through the investors again? Um, instead of just writing a check. Instead of just writing a check, yeah. I didn't want Fixer to be the Mike show. I wanted from the very start. I wanted it to be um, an impact-oriented business with a broad base of, of committed people with skin in the game who, um, who cared about what we were trying to accomplish. And, um, and eventually the business might need a series C or a series D or a series E. Um, there's, there's some point at which writing the check becomes quite uncomfortable for me. I could have written the $5 million check. Um, more than that starts to feel like a little bit like there's a lot of money to put into one business. Um, even if I really believe in the business, it makes more sense to stay diversified, right? In, in, from a portfolio perspective. So um, I wanted all those people alongside me because they make the business more likely to succeed. They have ideas, they challenge me, they point out my blind spots. I love board meetings because when an investor tells you something you hadn't thought of, you're like, nice. Like your, your money was fine, but now you're providing value. <laughs> this is what I want. And so um, I encourage every every founder to get aboard as quickly as possible because they make you more likely to succeed by telling you shit you don't want to hear. And if it's you just don't want them because you don't want to hear it, that doesn't make you a good leader. It means your head's in the sand, right? Yeah. So, um, and so I wanted all of those things pulling in the same direction. And so as we sort of are, are now now on our path, we'll probably have a, a fairly large Series B at some point soon. Um, like I, you know, I think. Um, you know, hopefully, uh, if we continue growing like we're growing, um, it's just a lot easier to, to if I was starting from scratch at this point, I'm like, maybe I should put a board together and get some investors. It's like it's too late. And the business would have failed by now if I didn't have a board like they've definitely coached me to to 
take some turns and some changes and some things like that that I wouldn't have seen. And I've done this before. Like, I know what I'm doing. But I, I have blind spots just like anybody else. I mean, there's been a few times even where the lessons I learned the first time around turned out to be false the second time around. And so um, because the businesses are different and then it's a different time than it was then. And, and, the, and the board of directors helps point those things out. Cool. Um, l- last, last question I'll combine into, I'll, I'll take two questions, put into one. What, what would you want to be your final message for the audience? You know, um, it, whether it's something that you have, you wish founders would have asked you, but never do. Yeah, I mean, my final message is the same as my first message, which is um, have a vision for where you're going personally and understand how the vision for where you're going personally matches up with the vision for where the company is going and and know how they're related and how they're different. And like, ju- like from the vision comes a goal and from the goal comes strategy and from the strategy comes tactics. But like start with like, where am I going? What am I trying to accomplish for myself? Um, if you want to just be filthy rich, great. Go be really good at being filthy rich. If you want something different than that, just be explicit and thoughtful about what it is. Um, and that's that's it. That's like that's the message. Uh, it's very hard to get somewhere if you don't know where you're going. I love it. No, it's 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 simple but true. Thank you so much, Mike. I uh, I really appreciate your time today and coming on our show. And uh, as always, thank you to our listeners for tuning in and supporting the show. And uh, you know. We'll um, come back to you soon with another another episode of Off the Record. Mike, thanks again. It was All a right, pleasure having a you. We are proud.